I find it somewhat ironic that there are places outside my house where I want grass to grow and I can't get it to grow. There are other places, such as cracks in my driveway, where I don't want grass to grow, and somehow it just manages to happen. And uh, I didn't go along and put seed there, you know, and I just think it's just such a wonder. I'm going to show you a picture right now. This is a picture in Piemonte, if I'm saying that correct, Italy. A very unique tree grows there. It's called the, the double tree of Cazzazzo. And what you're seeing here is a cherry tree growing on top of a mulberry tree. Now, this is in the early spring. The mulberry tree doesn't have all the leaves on it yet, so it's at this point that you can really see the, the contrast and the, uh, the interaction of those two trees. Uh, speculation, nobody really knows how this came about. Uh, the most logical one that has been put out there as far as an explanation is that probably some bird dropped a seed on top of the mulberry tree and found enough um, ability to germinate and the roots of the cherry tree have now gone down through the trunk of the mulberry tree all the way down to the soil so it can get the, the water and the nutrients that it needs. Isn't that phenomenal that something like that uh, has happened like that? That cherry tree really stands as a monument of sorts of how to overcome amazing obstructions. Uh, you wouldn't think that it could do that, but it has in fact done that. As I was reading in preparation for this message and, and just thinking about the obstructions that we face as believers, in the world in which we live in, the culture that we have been dropped in, it wouldn't seem to make sense or even be possible that you could go out and give the message about Jesus Christ, about what that means to become a true believer, how life-transforming that is, knowing that the people that are hearing it they are in spiritual darkness, and there's a natural rejection of the light of Jesus Christ. And you wouldn't think there would ever be anybody that would get saved. In fact, if you're really honest with yourself, there, you would look at your own life and say, you know, it's remarkable that I ever became a Christian. Knowing how proud I am, how, how uh, sinful, how self-willed I am that I had to come to a place in my life where God broke me down and I surrendered to the gospel and said, yes, I recognize I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And nobody gets saved unless you come to that understanding. Repent, that's changing your mind about any other way of getting there or that sin isn't as bad as it is. Changing that mindset to the understanding is I have to put my faith completely in the finished work of God. I can't do anything to help out that process, but just accept the gift of eternal life. What we've read this morning in Acts chapter 4 is the first of many incidents in the book of Acts that we're going to encounter where those commanded to be witnesses, and that came from chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus told them, you're going to be witnesses unto me and to the uttermost part of the earth. And yet there's going to be facing, these people are going to face obstructions over and over again. 
In fact, there's going to be way more resistance initially every time the gospel's given, we're going to see, than there is just the, oh, I am so glad you showed up to tell us about Jesus. There's a little bit of that, but even initially there, even if it's not given to us, you know there had to be some resistance in people's minds that had to be broken down by God. As we're going to see in this text, the believers were just obedient to the gospel. It's not complicated, not complex. They knew what the gospel was. They, they knew the story of Jesus having died, was buried, and rose again according to scriptures, just as he said, and it was done for the personal benefit of people. That's the gospel. And we're going to see that they were just faithful to believe that that's what people needed, even if they didn't act like they wanted to hear it, even if they got upset about it. They just said, but we believe that this is what we're supposed to do. And when people are willing to do that, when you and I are willing to do, just like Peter and John are doing in this text, God has a way of supernaturally overcoming the obstructions of others. It really is. And don't just think, well, I've got to find the people that don't have those obstructions. Every person that's born into this world is born unsaved as a natural man, and the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And that, when it says he doesn't receive them, doesn't mean he just doesn't get it. It means he doesn't want it. So there is something outside of what you and I can do as tellers of the gospel that has to happen. And God does that. God did that in your life. He did that in my life. And God is still doing that in people's lives. So, as we look at this passage of Scripture, what should you and I expect when seeking to be obedient to being witnesses of the gospel, knowing that there's obstructions out there. First of all, let's see the exasperation that is out there over the message. There is an exasperation in people's lives when they are confronted with the gospel. You know, the primary issue here, as we read this text, in case you, it didn't stand out to you, is the topic of the resurrection the bodily resurrection of a person. Now, it points out here in our text in verse 1 that there's a group of people specifically mentioned here called the Sadducees. And what is important to understand about the Sadducees, because they're sort of running the story here. They're the ones that are motivating what's happening here more than pretty much anybody else. And the Sadducees were a part of what we called the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Jewish people religiously in that day and time. Now, the Sadducees were only a component of that. The other side of it were the Pharisees. And we'll encounter Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul. Well, he was a Pharisee. So, well, what's the difference between the two? Without going into all the details, what you need to understand about the Sadducees is they did not accept the concept of a literal resurrection at all. It goes back to the history of the founder of the Sadducees who taught that the soul of man is extinguished at death and there is no fate beyond the grave. In other words, this is all there is and when there is a funeral, then... That's it. 
that that person as you know them is gone they just they don't they're not anywhere their life completely is over and as one person said uh, that's a that's a pretty dismal thing to believe isn't it and they're called Sadducees, and so one person said that it's an easy way to remember Sadducees from Pharisees because they don't believe in the hope of the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Okay, that's not original with me, but um, I, I don't necessarily enjoy going to funerals or memorial services. We go, most of us, out of support for the family that's left behind. And I went to one yesterday of one of our former church members here. Actually, he was one of our charter members here at the church. And I was very thankful for the message that was given during the service that this isn't the end of the line. That there is hope beyond the grave. And that when we die, as Paul talks about in the, the epistle to the Corinthians, it's kind of like a tent being taken down. And then you're moving out of the tent into something more permanent, which, of course, we know is heaven. But it isn't just our, 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 you know, we're left for all eternity to have our soul floating around. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that there is coming a time where the graves will be opened and that in Christ we'll be resurrected. And we're not just given back this body with all of its problems. We're, we're transformed. We're giving a new body. I've been in churches where sometimes someone will either print out this Bible verse or I've seen it in needlepoint or cross-stitch and they put it over the nursery door kind of humorously, I think, and it says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Well, that's true of the babies in the nursery, right? They don't all sleep. Hopefully they're all changed, you know, but it's not talking about babies there in a nursery. It's talking about the fact that you know, Jesus may come back before we taste that physical death. Amen? And that'd be okay with me. But either way, we're all changed. That's the resurrection. We're all transformed if we're in Christ. But the Sadducees didn't believe that. They, they believed that a person who was to serve God needed to do so disinterestedly without any hope of reward or fear of punishment. You just do the right thing because it's the right thing. And no doubt, many of them felt a sense of arrogant superiority because they sought to live properly without the motivation of any eternal bliss. In other words, it would be like saying, you don't need to bribe me to do the right thing right now. I'll do the right thing just because it's the right thing. Whether I get a reward, whether there's anything beyond the grave or not. And that seemed to be the spirit and the mindset of these Sadducees. However, lest they be misguided in their own estimations of their self, there was a reward for them. They didn't maybe acknowledge it. Their reward was the sense of accomplishment and the accolades that they were getting from people at that time. Oh, in other words, oh, wow, look how spiritual he is. He, he's, he's living for God without the thought of getting any kind of crowns or a new body or a home in heaven someday, isn't he something else? Well, Jesus warned about people that live to get the praise of men. He says, that is your reward. Hope you enjoy it, because that's, that's it for you, since you don't believe properly. 
it's, it's not a, a shallow thing to believe what God has taught us in the Word of God, folks. He's taught us that there is a hope. We're given the, the earnest or literally the down payment of the Holy Spirit when we get saved to let us know there is more to come. And that's exciting. And, and maybe it is a shallowness of my humanity. He does know our frame that we're dust, the Bible says. But some days I need the hope of eternal life to help me do the right thing right now. I need the thought that I'm going to see my Savior face to face when my life work is ended and I've crossed the swelling tide. The bright and glorious morning I shall see. Peter's message was arousing the people in directions that frustrated the religious leaders of his day. How was that? Well, perhaps they thought once the people got a taste of eternal hope, it would be more difficult to move them back into an ideology of living spiritually without any sort of elation that comes along with it, because that's the way the Sadducees approached it. And they were trying to make disciples to themselves. Now, as you might guess, there was a lot of friction between the Sadducees and the Pharisees who, who didn't see eye to eye mainly on this one point. And, there, and there's times that we'll see that, that Paul knows this, and strategically he brings up this subject, so they start fighting, and he just kind of walks away and leaves them to duke it out, sort of. But it's sad. It really is. Because there is an, a, a manipulation that's going on fleshly in the hearts of these religious leaders. They're doing it under the guise of religious piety. Oh, we're trying to do the right thing. It's only really honoring to God if it lines up correctly with Scripture. Doesn't mind, doesn't matter seemingly how pious it looks. And men has tried over and over again to, to do things that uh, eliminate pleasure in their life. There's orders of monks. Uh, Martin Luther was one of these where he went for a time period really in his heart looking for some answers as to how to have some spiritual satisfaction, looking for the meaning of it all. And so he went through the, the, the real uh, strenuous, disciplined routines of some of the monkish orders, depriving himself of, of food and fasting, but beyond that, self-beatings that they would go through. Certain devices that were created to inflict pain on yourself that you would wear, believing that going through that sort of agony somehow elevated your soul spiritually. And he would go through all this and finish it and be very frustrated because he didn't feel any closer to the Lord afterwards than when he began. And the answer is that's not how it's found. Just by living meagerly, living painfully. The Sadducees, of course, had sort of that mindset. The other thing uh, that frustrated the Sadducees about what's going on here and again, they're, they're concerned about the impact it's having on the multitudes. The people who are persuaded to accept the resurrection of Christ would most likely become a follower of Christ and add to a movement that opposes those who push for his crucifixion. See, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the high priest and the scribes were all in cahoots to bring about the crucifixion of Christ. We wanted to get rid of this rabbi, 
because he doesn't have very nice things to say about us. He's, he's saying that we're not teaching properly. And rather than them taking it to heart and say, well, maybe we're not teaching properly. Let's listen to this guy a little bit. They just said, let's silence him. Let's get him out of here. And seemingly they were successful in that because now Jesus isn't there himself. they got a bigger problem. They've got an army of people that are moved by the Spirit of Christ that are going to be pushing out into the uttermost part of the earth. And there is no silencing of these people. There is no silencing of these people. And so there is an exasperation that's going on. Not in the minds of the servants of Christ, but in the outward people that are opposing them. It's no surprise that the crowd was polarized in their response. And there's really two forms of exasperation here. There's exasperation with change, which is seen in verse 2 with the idea that some were grieved. This speaks of stubbornness. In other words, wait, what he is saying, what I'm hearing him preach back in chapter 3, and what has resulted in this man being transformed physically by being able to walk when he couldn't walk before, this is going to require a radical change in my life. And most of us, were, if we're honest, we don't like change that we're not the initiators of. Think about it. So I say, I don't like change. Well, probably most of us are okay with change. We just like to be the initiators. We like to be in control of that change. In other words, it's my idea. So when someone else comes up and says, hey, let me point out something. You haven't been right all your life in this big category about your relationship with God. That's not going to go over real well, is it? So it's not really a surprise that some were grieved. The religious leaders do not like what is happening because it clashes with their ideology. I mean, literally they're going to have to say, you know what, we've got to throw all the books away. We've got to start from scratch. That's what they needed to do. But it's hard to do. So they laid hands on them. The preachers are powerful with their message alone, but the rulers must use physical restraint and intimidation. There's an exasperation with change here. But there are those that grieved, but verse 4 says there are others that, what? Believed. So while the first group are those that are exasperated with change, these are people that are exasperated with cover-up. And while the, the, one that were, the ones that were grieved showed stubbornness, these people show surrender. You hear the word belief. You need to hear the word trust. And when you hear belief and trust and faith, they all are commingled concepts. But for us to do that, when we've been at odds with God, there has to be a form of surrender. These people that we're talking about here are yielded to the truth of the message, even though it meant radical transformation. Some people were willing to say, yes, I've been wrong all my life. Folks, when I was 12 years old, I heard the message in a way that spoke to me that I hadn't allowed it to speak to me before. When I heard the gospel, the Spirit of God moved in my heart. And it's at that point, as a little boy, that I realized I have been wrong all my life. I came to that point of surrender. And you know what exasperated me most at that point? 
wasn't the message I was hearing that helped me transform. It was the realization that there had been people in my life that had misled me to make me feel comfortable where I was, to tone down the gospel. I'm thankful for godly parents that faithfully kept sharing the gospel with me. But you know, you can always find those people in your life that will tell you what you want to hear, and you can gravitate to them so you feel better about yourself. But that doesn't help you. That hurts you if it takes you away from the truth. These people were frustrated with a religious system that had suppressed the truth and made a relationship with God sterile and unfeeling. I mean, think about how these new believers that are now believing at this moment begin to think, all along I've been believing there's no resurrection. I've been, I've been believing that there's no hope beyond the grave. There's no hope for a reunion with my loved ones that have put their faith in God truly. How exasperating is that? I've, I have faced it when I have seen people recently come to Christ, and they come out of some religious system in our culture and they and say, you mean all along I've been told that I have to do this and this and this, and I still don't have any confidence that I'll make it into heaven when I die, but I just sort of hope that my good outweighs my bad? I've been told that by religious people. I've been told that by clerics. I've been told that by preachers. I've been told it by religious leaders. And you mean that was all wrong, and I've been, that's been a counterfeit all my life? And I'm like, it's what the Word of God says. And we ought to be exasperated at that so that we don't ever want to go back, or we never begin to soft-pedal how disastrous that form of teaching is. If you're a believer, you're a commissioned messenger of the gospel. When you share the truth of Christ with clarity, there will be a response of exasperation. There will be. They're either going to be exasperated with the message because they don't want to surrender, they want to remain stubborn. Or they're going to believe it, and they're going to be exasperated that I just wish that I had gotten saved sooner. You want the latter kind of exasperation in people, amen? You're not there for the people that are going to remain stubborn. You can't gauge your faithfulness in the future to be obedient to share the gospel because there are those people that says, I'm not going to give up my ideology. I'm not going to give up the way I think. I'm not going to change. It doesn't mean you don't have compassion for them, but ultimately that's a work that God has to do. And you just keep going on to find those in whom the Spirit of God is working. There is an exasperation of the message. Secondly, there is an examination of the message here. There's a proper skepticism in people when faced with a life-altering truth. And that's a good thing, really. We're not criticizing that in and of itself. That when you hear something that is radically new, by the time we get to later in the book of Acts, we're going to find a time where Peter himself is being confronted by God through a vision with a very life-transforming thought about how he's going to interact with people and about how he's going to conduct himself with regard to spiritual rites and ceremonies and things like that. And he's resistant to it at first. But you just think about it. If you were brought up in a church 
and your parents who you admire and respect and your family and friends and from the time you were all you could know this is the way to God and then suddenly later in life you're said nope scrap it all it's entirely wrong or some of it's right but there's just enough counterfeit put in to make it all polluted we really ought to have a sense of examination of the message Moses anticipated this at the burning bush, remember? God comes to him and says, I want you to go and deliver my people. <laughs> he says, well, wait a minute. Because he's remembering when he left, he had to kind of run away from Egypt. Not because of the Egyptians, but because of the Hebrews, when he had to slay one of the Egyptian guards to protect one of his brothers, they said, who are you, Moses, to think you're delivered to us? He thought he would be thanked, but he wasn't. So he got out of town quick because he was afraid that he'd be uncovered and he would face some punishment from the Egyptians for killing a guard. So when it's time, 40 years later, at an 80-year-old man's age to go back, he says, God, <laughs> what am I going to tell them when they ask, who sent you? When they basically say, who are you to tell me what to do? I'd like an answer this time. God says, tell them, I am have sent you. Give them my name, Yahweh, which is what it was in the Hebrew the eternally existent one, the name they identified with God. And by the way, anybody can throw that name around. So what's that in your hand? You got a rod? Let me show you what you can do with that, with my power. Turns it into a snake, picks it back up, it turns back into a stick. And of course, the Jews were wired to want signs. And so there was an authentication. It was perfectly right that the Hebrews, when Moses shows up, says, why should we believe you? And God knew that. Not all skepticism is wrong. Not all examination is wrong. The test of a prophet, because you can, anyone could put up a sign and get business cards and says, I'm the new prophet in town. So how do you know whether he's a right prophet or not? By the sheer number of people that follow him? No, the multitudes can be wrong. Jesus pointed that out. Most are on the path that leads to destruction. So the majority is almost typically wrong we could say. The testable prophet was 100% accuracy in what he said. No mistakes in his prophecy, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 22. If a prophet's predictions did not come true, then he could not have been speaking for God since God never lies, Numbers 23, 19. Plain and simple. I guess he's not the guy. Rip that business card up. Not going to look to him anymore for guidance. So when they say, by what authority? In other words, what's backing you up, Peter, in what you have to say? Why should we listen to you? Who gives you the right to say any of these things that you're saying? And that is a good question. You and I need to be discerning, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. In fact, 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Don't just have an acceptance of, okay, Boy, this person has a wonderful spirituality about them. Don't just believe it just because they seem to pour out in a very magnanimous way the Spirit of, of God. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, or we could say examine the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then he goes on to explain how do we do that. Remember in Acts and we'll come to this in chapter 17. There's a group of people called the Bereans. They're Christians. And in chapter 17, verse 11, 
it says that they were more noble than the Thessalonican people because they were searching or literally interrogating the scriptures when a preacher showed up to see, now, does his message ring true with what I'm seeing in my Bible? And folks, that should always be the case. Be leery of religions, churches, systems that don't encourage you to say, check it out. See if it isn't there. And if it's not, let me know, because I certainly don't want to be saying something that isn't right here. So there is an examination that's problem. So what's the problem here? The problem with the interrogation in Acts 4 is that the leaders are prejudiced against the message before it's ever given. They don't have an openness to say, let's hear it. You guys got your scrolls out? Okay, we're all ready to go, Peter. Tell us where to turn. Is it Isaiah? Is it in the Psalms? We want to match up. See, that's what hopefully you're doing today. You bring your Bibles. And I'm always encouraged when I see people bring in their Bibles that they've, they've marked up and they're studying and saying, you know what? And I don't ever take it as a sign of disrespect. It is proper because I want you to walk out of here not saying, well, I don't know about that. I want you to be able to say, Pastor Wood didn't say anything that wasn't right there in my lap. But see, these people weren't doing that. They were sitting there with their arms crossed, so to speak, figuratively, maybe literally, and saying, I, I dare you. However, the spirit of prejudice isn't true of everyone, since the natural man is at enmity with God. A divine work must happen. In other words, there's no one that's going to receive the message of God. You need faith, but how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. So don't ever think that there is another better approach other than getting a lost person and just giving them Scripture. Yeah, but they told me the last time I talked to them, they don't accept the Word of God. That doesn't change the power of the Word of God. I mean, Jesus didn't say... Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God if they believe that the Word is the Word of God. No. It's still powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, regardless of what they think. And all of us at some point were against the Word of God, dug our heels in. But it's that constant seeding of God's Word. Thirdly, I want you to see the explanation of the message. In verses 8 through 12, the message results in, in benevolence towards mankind. Notice in, in verse 9, it says, if Peter says, if we this day be examined of the good deed. In other words, what happened here isn't something disruptive and problematic. There was a guy that couldn't walk and he had been that way from birth. He can walk now. How is that not a good thing? We helped him out. In Luke 2.14, when Jesus' birth is being announced, the angels declared to the shepherds that the coming of Christ would produce peace on earth. What else? Goodwill toward men. Who could argue with that? I mean, really, isn't that something good? Really, the world would say, yes, we want peace on earth. They're just unwilling to go the only route that works through the Prince of Peace. Talk about 
goodwill to your fellow men? That's what all this stuff about political correctness is about, but it's so misguided. In other words, it's simple. Everybody just follow Jesus Christ. The peace will come and the goodwill toward each other will come. And that's the only way it's going to work. The message results in benevolence towards mankind. The message clearly identifies the person of Christ. Note at verse 10. Specificity is the key. They don't just say, we're here to represent a rabbi. They don't even just say, we're here to represent a man named Jesus because while we read our Bibles, there's only one Jesus. There was actually, Jesus was a very common name. It, it's the New Testament version of, of Joseph in many ways, or, or Joshua, rather, excuse me, Savior. And so that name had, had been around. You don't hear people in America named Jesus too much. You do hear the Hispanic, what? Jesus, Jesus. So you need to be very particular. Who are you talking about? Which Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. And they knew who that was. It was identifying it. And there might have even been other Jesus of Nazareth, but none that were prominent like he was. The key is, make sure people know you're talking about the Jesus of the Bible, the way the Bible describes Jesus. Because some people say, yeah, I'm talking about Jesus of the Bible. Then they go on to describe how they believe about him. I'm like, you're really preaching another Jesus, as Paul warned about, because that's not how Jesus is portrayed in my Bible. And look at verse 12. Peter even emphasizes it more. Neither is there another name, right? There's salvation in any other. There, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the only way. And that bears out what Jesus said. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The message clearly must identify the person of Christ. And then thirdly, the message clears up misunderstanding. Verse 11, Peter quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, to identify that those that were helping construct Judaism, if I could refer to it as construction, because that's what they, they thought, were building up our religious system. And in, in Psalm 18, 22, it just talks about the builders. But here, Peter says, you're the builders. And while that sounds like a flattering thing, wow, I'm a, I'm a builder of a religious thing. That's, that's a pretty f special thing. But what Psalm 18, 118 goes on to explain is that the builders totally missed the main block. They were looking for the Messiah, the anointed one, Yeshua, but they had totally misrepresented in their minds what he would look like when he showed up. They thought he's going to be some sort of civil liberator from the Romans. He said, and he came, and you disallowed him, just like the psalm says. You know, what's going on here, hopefully, in this preaching of Peter in the hearts is that minds of those Sadducees and those scribes and the high priests are thinking, at least for a moment, well, we have always thought of ourselves as the builders of the system. But it never really clicked in, in me that while I quote this chapter all the time, that it is in fact saying that the builders totally miss the main cornerstone. 
the leaders were unaccustomed to such a massive movement toward a man, especially after his death. And indeed, this is Jesus being made the head of the corner. And you're going to see it more and more, but, I mean, Pentecost thousands, now here thousands are being saved. I mean, these are, these are huge events that are happening in religious system that are not complementary of the system that they were holding up, Judaism. It's Christ. It's the church. If you look over at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20, you have Paul go on to, to talk about the same concept. Ephesians 5 verse, verse 20, or 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 20, talking about the church. And it says, and are built upon, talking about us as believers, as the church, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief what? Cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple of the Lord. It wasn't just an ornamental stone like we sometimes use in construction today. It really was pivotal for structural integrity. You pulled out that cornerstone, the whole thing was compromised in its integrity. And you don't get Jesus right in your religious system. Anything you build is going to crumble potentially. That's what Peter is trying to point out to them. And he does an amazing job under the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. He explains the message. It was not flattering to them. It was putting them on the spot. But folks, they couldn't be helped if they didn't hear the truth. And the truth wasn't very friendly at this moment. Fourthly, I want you to see, lastly, the exoneration that happens here despite the message in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Who's being exonerated? Well, the messengers themselves. Here's now the, the little discussion after Peter comes to his conclusion, pauses, and now they're deliberating. And what is said about the messengers? It is notable that such men could preach with such influence since they had not been formally trained. They were unlearned, the Bible says. That's what it means by it. They hadn't been to the school of Gamaliel like it'll say of Paul eventually. The term ignorant, that's not a slam on them, so to speak. The term ignorant properly denotes those who live in private and contradistinction from those who are engaged in public life or in office. You see, if you were a rabbi, you put yourself out there in the public square. Everybody knew who you were. You wanted the publicity, so to speak. You wanted to have, not for yourself, you wanted to get as many disciples that you could influence them for good. And who are these guys? They, they've been locked up in a room for a period of time after Jesus had ascended. And all of a sudden, they show up. And even before that, they were just fishermen that were following the rabbi. There was something inexplicable about them that shouted caution to doing something drastic to silence them. We better be careful because nothing makes sense about why people are responding to their preaching the way they are, knowing what we know about them. You know, what, what is the secret to them? They were, in fact, according to verse 8, filled with what? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Folks, that is our secret weapon, if I can put it that way. 
that is the only source of power that we should go out and saying, Lord, I go in your name. I am so unprepared in so many ways, but I'm just going to go out. If nothing else, I know my testimony. I can share how Jesus changed my life. And I can mark my Bible with verses. I may not have them all memorized yet, but I can, I can tab it and I can turn here. And people may look at me and say, you never went to seminary, did you? No. But seminary came to me when the Holy Spirit came to dwell inside of me. So the messengers were exonerated. They didn't like them anymore, but they, they could not dispute what was happening here. But the man here is also exonerated. Do you see that? The lame man. And they even comment, here was a man that was changed. He had been impaired all of his life, and now he is whole physically. There is nothing so convincing to other people as the testimony of a transformed life. Because it's not just about him physically being better, he is now also a spiritual follower of Jesus Christ. Because he, when he got his legs back, he immediately began to walk and leap, and what else? Praised God. There was a spiritual transformation in this man that accompanied his physical healing. You know, People don't much like what they can't explain. The wise men of Babylon, they were infuriated with a man named Daniel because he had such influence in the realm. And all he was doing was just being obedient to God. Just, I can't, I can't not be faithful to my God. And as he did that, he just kept moving up, so to speak. He didn't have aspirations for lofty ranks and positions, but... God put him there for a reason. God was going to use him there. But you know, when Daniel was put in the lion's den, how did that come about? Well, the other men that were wise men subservient to Daniel because he had been made the head of the others at this point. They said, we have been watching him trying to find some sort of fraud in his life. Some bad habit. I mean, anything that we can go and say, King, you need to get rid of this guy. Says, and they even admitted, we can't find anything against this guy except to be occasion concerning his God. He is so devoted to Jehovah God. So what we're going to have to do is come up with some way that the king will go against Daniel because of how faithful he is to his God. And that's why Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. He's the, the king, listening to the men and his pride being elevated, made a law and said, nobody can pray to anybody else except you, king. And Daniel's like, I can't not be obedient to God. I need to pray. And so God honored him through that, right? We love the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Everybody knows that story that knows the Bible. But what does it show? When the stone was rolled away the next day and the king anxiously ran down there and says, Daniel, is your God able to deliver you? Fear not, king. He was alive. Why? God exonerated a man who was obediently faithful. That doesn't mean that God won't allow martyrs to happen, because he has. Going to heaven sooner is not such a bad thing, is it? Sometimes God's plan and these stories of people who have been faithful unto death resonate so strongly down church history to give us confidence to 
also follow the Lord Jesus Christ unapologetically. So whether you die and martyr them because you're standing up for Christ, or God delivers you, we're still more than conquerors through him that loved us so. We're always exonerated. He always causeth us to triumph, the Bible tells us. Always. Always. Are there obstructions? Oh my, yes. Are there obstacles? Yes. Are there days that you feel frustrated and almost willing to say, you know what, I'm, I'm waving the white flag of surrender to being a missionary, to being a faithful witness, to evangelize with the gospel to my neighbors? I, I'm, I just, I'm just done with the resistance. Oh, my friend, what a mistake that would be. You would miss out seeing God's faithfulness back to you for being faithful to Him. You would miss out seeing God exonerating and as only He can. Not just you, but how God will exonerate those that are transformed by His redemption. The renewing of a new life taken from spiritual death and given a place in the heavenlies to be heirs with God. Born again. Don't get in your mind that resistance is a strange thing. It ought to be expected. But God is faithful to those that are faithful to Him. Father in heaven, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we have not consistently been faithful. We have not always believed that your hand is at work. We have difficulty when we can't see you with our physical eyes. The walk by faith is challenging. You are so merciful that you never scrap us and say, I'm done with you, but you forgive us as we come and we repent the times that we have been neglectful. And we said, Lord, I, I want to be faithful. I, I, I want to be like Peter here. To have a boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit. Not that wells up inside of me because I'm all ramped up with sort of a team spirit fervor. No, but because the Spirit of God is controlling me. The message of the gospel is just driving me. And that I don't have expectations that I shouldn't have. That, that everybody necessarily is going to respond favorably. and There's going to be opposition. I know that. Lord, help us to understand that. But Lord, help us to be obedient in spite of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.